Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and everything it takes to build, grow, sell, and price value. I have got Jerry Gowan back. Jerry is old friend from my days at WL Gore, battle-tested and battle-proven, one of the best value sellers that I ever met. And uh, he's back for another episode where we tell some stories about selling value in a complex B2B world. Jerry, welcome. Hi, Mark. Glad to be back. Yep. I'm glad to have you back. So we talked about the difficulty in selling. And we all know that the number of buying influencers or or personas or the size of the buying team, the number of people weighing in on a buying decision is growing over the last couple of years. You know, it was uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, it was maybe five or six people. Now it's somewhere between seven and 15. And the natural inclination salespeople have is don't make it any more complex because that social complexity is hard to sell into. And that's something that you were really good at wrestling with when we were working together. Tell us a little bit about your approach to uh, working with a large group of, of buying people or, or and some of the experiences you had. Jeez, I can think of bunches. Um, one of the things that I did was uh, I did my homework, Mark. Uh, I, I was always a student of the game. Um, and, um, you know, when a particular opportunity that came up uh, looked like, you know, wow, we could hit this one out of the park, um, then I would do my background research on it. Um, I would consult internally uh, with my you know, uh, placeholders, if you will, um, in the sense of hierarchical, right? Right. <laughs> has a place that they hold. Um, and then I would pretty much gather an internal consensus of, uh, you know, what our path should be. And so then I would sit down and I would prepare my presentation. And what I also uh, would do is... I would always send out an email that listed topics of discussions. And I think that helped me to get diverse people all focused on the same bullet, if you will, the same talking point. And then that really helped to get the group uh, to focus on these items. And before we get started, you know, I would ask them, um, is there any other bullets you want to add? Yep. A couple things. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop because there's like four things I want to talk about already and expand on. One, doing your homework. I mean, doing your homework on the group, the buying team, the the buying dynamic among the people. Doing your homework in terms of understanding the business, what's important. Doing your homework in terms of this particular application, this particular opportunity, all the different technical requirements uh, that came in from different 
corners of the company, right? This engineer wants that technical requirement. This engineer, it think this is really important. And you have to have a, a product that does all of those things really well, all at the same time. Is, is that what you mean by doing, doing your homework? So, yeah, I mean, you know, we use tools like, and I'm preaching to the choir here, Mark, uh, Miller-Hyman, Blue Sheets, et cetera. Uh, real complex sales, maybe even a gold sheet. Uh, so, you know, you had to find out who's who in the zoo and what their each individual person's win would be yeah. if, if we delivered, you know, a high-valued uh, uh, outcome for them. So, yes, I did that. Um, yeah, I did a lot of uh, backgrounds uh, digging in the company itself. Wanted to understand their products. Uh, wanted to understand their problems. Um, wanted to understand their customers' focus, what their issues may be. Um, so I did, you know, a pretty good dive. Um, and I didn't have time to chase every little job coming down the street, Mark. You know, I chose my targets well. I dug in and, uh, you know, I worked my tail off till I got it where I wanted it to be. So, uh, yeah, you know, you had this talent for knowing when there was an opportunity that not only that we could win, but that nobody else could really do as well at knowing where we were unique. And that's something that I tried to do when I was a product manager. And you, you were able to quickly figure out when an opportunity was one that we unique we could uniquely win. Was that just years and years of understanding all the products and just uh, being uh, the technical expert in what our capabilities were? Um, I had a very unique experience. Uh, when I went to work for Gore, it was this little $70 million company down in Newark, Delaware. It was just coming out of a threatened bankruptcy for the second time. Uh, so at the time, they had 13 salespeople. Today, Gore has like 600. Okay. But um, when they brought me on, it essentially came down to, hey, we, we do a lot of things around here. Why don't you go find something to do? Well, I was a bit flummoxed. Wait a minute. You, you guys just, just, you know, hired me and you're just telling me to like walk around the place and see if I can find something I want to do. Yeah. So eventually I ran every piece of equipment we had in the factory. Um, getting into that minutia of, uh, you know, how do you make this thing? You know, yeah. that just spoke volumes. And we had... Yeah, yeah, people back in the day there too, and they would spend a lot of time teaching you about things. Today, you're not going to find that. Yeah, you're not going to find that. So I really <clears throat> I harp with my clients on getting real clear on what you're the best at, and then describing that in a succinct way as part of the sales, not just features and benefits, but what the customer outcome. And if they don't do us, then they're going to have to do something really drastic, like completely redesign the box and, and change their project schedule and something really costly. And you had come up to learning that organically. Is that something that you can give people the, the Cliff Notes version so that they can at least ask the good questions? It's, it's tough, Mark. Today, you know, you go out and interview for a sales job and you get it. You nail the job. Yeah. 
they, they went, it hit the floor running. When I first started out, I was trained in a factory environment for two years before they let me on the street. If you look at the Japanese model of technical selling, as an example, the, the average uh, sales executive at a Japanese company typically started somewhere in engineering, uh, worked his way up through design teams, um, and then from that point, possibly into systems level engineering, things to that effect. And they typically have at least 20 years of experience inside before it will ever let anybody go out and talk to a customer on the outside. Yeah, I have some clients that don't do 20 years, but they'll do a, a long time as an application engineer or, or something like that, an internal uh -huh. manufacturing or design engineer uh, right. who wants to branch out and talk to customers. And uh, some of those guys are the leading sellers at different companies. And that kind of circles back to doing your homework and understanding the customer and understanding the business and understanding how you're unique. I think that that's really super important and something that sales people and sales teams aren't very good at today. Understanding your customer and understanding your customer's world. Right. And you need to understand your own organization too. Yeah. You know, what you're capable of. Sure. One of Gore's uh, founders, uh, man by the name of Heinrich Flick. Yeah. Ever met Heinrich? Yep. Okay. He wrote a book called The Amoeba Concept. I think he can actually even go out on Amazon and buy it. He used this concept of how an amoeba can um, take on different shapes and it can divide itself and split into two amoeba, whatever. And he talked about the value of creating ad hoc teams where when an opportunity would come up and some of the stuff I worked on, well, you just dig into the company and you find a guy or guys that can do that, right? So I would pull people in from Cherry Hill, from Appleton, from PMW. From yeah. These are these. different plants with different sets of expertise for those of you on the- Ex Exactly. And that's where a lot of the magic was, Mark, is because when you bring these guys together, um, you suddenly realize Oh, here, here is the real picture, if you will, yeah. where we stand, you know, from a core technology perspective of how well we'll play out in this given scenario. So once you did that map out um, and then that team would just fold up like the amoeba and go away and go do other things. So yeah. I, I think you always benefit from that at some level. And I've, I've always said this, each opportunity has its own special aspects and you've got to get the right people organized around that opportunity. Even without that specialty team, understanding that special dual technology you're developing, you still have to understand what you're good at, why you're unique. And then you had to help a customer understand how they needed to make a good decision. There was a buying team in place but our differentiation really wasn't important to the people on the buying team that the customer had developed as part of their buying team. We say the customer self-informs and then gets a buying team together to go out and pursue it. But what happens if that buying team doesn't value what you sell because they didn't know something, which means they didn't bring that internal customer side expert into the buying team. A reliability engineer or a risk manager sometimes. Do you have a, a great story of, of when you did that 
for a for a client and help walk them through making a better decision by adding people to a buying team? So it was easy for me to find the resources I needed internally, gather a consensus, uh, create a plan. But I also always tried to find coaches in my accounts. And it takes a long time to develop a coach. Credibility built over a long period of time gets you to that place. I can remember oftentimes once, you know, we pulled our plan together, I would go to my coach and I would say, okay, so, you know, here's this application. Uh, here's this uh, widget that you, you need. I'm a neophyte. Can you teach me how to sell you essentially is how it came down to. Well, what, what is it of, that you perceive of value in what we have here? And if I miss something, can you help me? Can you teach me? And sometimes I'd have these guys, they would bring me up to their office, close the door, get up on the, the, the whiteboard for hours, teaching me RF theory and all kinds of stuff. And the coach's influence there was incredible. Oftentimes, my coach was not part of the buying team. He was just a resource I had for the ABC company, and he was pretty well positioned in his organization, too. So he had a good scope on things, and even when he didn't, he'd pick up the phone, sit right there in the office and, and call a couple guys and ask them a couple of questions, and then he'd come back and, <laughs> and fill in the blanks for me. So... You know, the best thing you could ever do in that respect is to have your customer teach you rather than you trying to teach your customer. Of course, you have to do both. But one of the reasons why I was so successful wasn't because I did one or the other. It was because I did both. In the world of value creation, you bring a lot of things to the table. But somebody has to have an appreciation for what it is. There's comfort zones. I've worked with engineers that were no risk takers. So they always would want to buy the best because when they're building their prototype or whatever, they couldn't afford a failure. They couldn't afford to get 117 lines down a Gantt chart and realize oh, that they blew the whole program. So now they got to back all the way back up again. You know, now you're starting to add time and costs and delays. Um, you could even kill a project, you know, because uh, you just missed you know, a window, right? Now, that, that person that took you under their wing and, and brought you up into their office, they're only willing to do that because you're either going to make them look good in the future or you have made them look good in the past, probably both. And they're willing to give you the time to let them look good again. Yeah, I, you know, I used to call that hero creation. And in my conversations, I'd always have a series of questions. What happens if you fail and you, and you can't do this? And then what would happen if you succeed? So you have them paint that picture and then you try and build a bridge from failure point to success point. And one thing you know, I hope you understand is, is I'm, I don't want to waltz into your place like uh some kind of savior. What I want to do is try and teach you how to sell my product, my concept, my idea, whatever it may be, to your own organization. I'm just the wing, the wind beneath your wings, so to speak. They're not going to give me a promotion. Yeah. They're not going to give me a raise. 
But if I help you win this, then God bless you, right? (laughs) You've got an ally. You're going to make the next sale more easily. And they're going to help you find problems sooner. And they're on your side. They want you to succeed. I also love the fact that you asked them, you know, what does failure look like? What's success like? And have them describe that. Uh, I maintain that when you ask them to describe it, you're actually asking them to make a movie that plays inside their head. You're asking them to write the movie, produce the movie, and perform the movie in their head with themselves starring. And here's the movie of you failing. Here's the movie of you succeeding. Just the fact that they have starred in that movie makes them want that that much worse and willing to work. Just asking them those questions and having them imagine success makes the sale. Certainly makes momentum towards the sale. Sure. Another thing that I've seen only a small percentage of people do, and you hardly even talk about it, but it's actually an elite selling behavior that only a small number of salespeople in in companies do. And that is, tell me about success. And then tell me about the dollars attached to that success. And you talked about, well, the project gets delayed and we have to start the project and we might even have to kill the project. Well, what does that mean if you kill the project? What is that going to mean to the CEO during his next earnings call? What is that going to mean to the head of engineering? What is that going to mean to you? What is that going to mean to everybody in your department? And how many dollars does each of those things happen? Um, We were conditioned to ask questions until the answer came back in dollars. And as soon as the answer comes back in dollars, now it's really anchored in the customer's mind how much value was. If you just ask them, well, the project gets delayed. Well, that sounds bad. But if you ask them, the project gets delayed, tell me what the dollar costs are involved. Um, Suddenly that movie went in their head, playing of the disaster went from black and white to Technicolor Dolby surround sound. Oh, absolutely. And you did that as just kind of your natural operating rhythm. And it's funny that that's the elite selling behavior that is so simple once you've done it a couple of times. And it's elite. And, you know, humility has its place. It was always a humbling experience for me when I would sit down with a customer and I would ask the customer if he could help me. And then I don't think in all the years... I played this game. I don't think I can remember a single time when I asked someone, can you help me, where they refuse to help you. It's it's like a natural human trait, okay? And so when I was asking them to help me, can you please explain the science or the technology behind this? Can you, you explain to me, if I could come up with this thing, whatever it may have been, what would its real attributes be? And it's amazing uh, when you when you go there. A case in point would be working on a radar system, high frequency stuff. And, you know, they might have 50, 60, 70, 80 different components that comprise the system. There's an engineer for each one of them. In, in this particular instance, you had one of many engineers specifying possibly just one interconnect from box A to box B, et cetera. Um, and then you go to the next component that's being designed by another engineer and, and he does the same thing. So sometimes they end up creating some really unrealistic specs. 
So uh, I'll never forget one time I was invited to a design meeting where they're, they're, it's called specking out. Um, they just started specking out all the dash 101s through dash 10N, okay, uh, what their length would be, connector configurations, insertion loss, visible, the whole nine yards, right? And then you'd had all these stakeholders of all these individual components or devices, and they're all fighting for that RF budget, you know, that insertion loss and visvoir point. And it's like, guys, this is incredibly expensive to do this this way. Don't, don't you have an, an ERP number you got to meet? Effective radiated power, you know. And then, yeah, of course we do. I said, okay. So what's the ERP on that component? Well, it doesn't have an ERP. That's at the business end of the system, you know, what's going in and out of a dish. I said, okay, so let's look at the whole RF budget. You got this thing going to that thing, going to this thing, going to that thing. And at the end of the day, you, you will have an accumulative loss and an accumulative visor. So why don't we spec this as a link to meet a total system requirement budget rather than you trying to drive? Optimize at the component. Yeah, each individual thing to be the very best when it's not necessarily needed. What you need to do is make sure you, at the end of the day, you've got that ERP coming out of that dish, right? (laughs) So we actually devised a, a plan to interconnect all these interconnects together and test them as a link, Boy, you know, rather than doing it individual piece by piece. And that allowed us to do things that greatly improved our yields, which improved our profitability. And at the end of the day, I delivered the exact value that customer had to deliver to his customers. So, so I mean, this is, I'm going to generalize out from designing a high-end radar thing to something that I teach a lot and I put in my book. And that is that when you're talking to somebody, there's a lot of people weighing in on the buying decision and everybody's an expert on their narrow nanozat of the entire thing, but nobody is an expert on the whole thing. And in companies today, the workforce is getting younger. Each one of those people, not only are there more of them because companies have gotten more splintered, but they haven't been in their jobs as long because everybody jumps around jobs a lot more. And so you took leadership of the critical performance characteristic and helped that team make a better decision. Now, it happened to be an engineering decision uh, with uh, some measurable electrical specs, but generalizing even further, being able to be the expert in your customer's business and your customer's system enough so that you could help them make a better decision. That's something that I preach over and over to my clients. And you just mentioned that story in a very flippant way, but that's a really special thing. Understanding your customer's world and understanding your customer's business well enough so that you can guide them. You know, some people call that commercial teaching, but it's not the kind of commercial teaching that marketing gives you in, you know, to make a challenge statement, you actually have to understand the customer's business. And that's a big deal. And, you know, that's a difficult game to play too, because I would always approach things uh, from a consultative perspective in the beginning. And, and then I was pretty careful in 
challenge statements that I would throw out to a customer. But sometimes you just need to do it. <clears throat> like that one call <laughs> you, you had talked about um, where I walked, we walked in and sat down in front of a customer and I asked him one question. Yeah, it was a challenger question, you know. Uh, so, so why am I here? You, you, you already know I'm going to be the most expensive option. <laughs> you know? So there is a place for that, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just rolling back to that, you know, being humble. <laughs> well, the research says that when you challenge like that, if you do it from a place of having a lot of credibility and a lot of personal comfort, it works great. But if you had walked in cold, not knowing those people, you would have had somebody calling Gore saying, can we get a new salesperson? Because this, oh, yeah. Yeah, this guy's an annoying know-it-all, and I right. never want him to darken my doorway again. Half of all challengers are knowing, annoying know-it-alls because they haven't taken the time to build credibility, understand the customer's business, and they make a challenge statement without anything to back it up. Right. That's death. Anything else you want to add? Okay, so at the very beginning of this discussion, we were talking about the uh, stovepipes. Yeah. Hierarchical structure. I can't tell you the number of times when I would scribe meetings where it's the project selection exercise. So we're always generating all kinds of opportunities, right? So we're trying to put it in a matrix figure out, you know, where what needs the least resources and creates the most revenue kinds of things. And because people weren't, when I say people, I'm talking about your, your fellow employees, okay? Yeah. If they're not intimately aware of what an opportunity contains, okay, because usually it's a bucket of worms, you'll never get put on the list. That's so sad. I've seen more jobs get pushed up and dumped the bad ones rather than good ones that were just ignored. So um, that's why I think it's so important that you you got to get rid of the stovepipes, and and you do that by forming ad hoc teams. Yeah, to try and make sure that whoever you bring into that team, um, you know, is a positive contributor. Uh, we don't we don't need spectators. Yeah. Two choices in life, spectate or participate. Yeah, and I'm going to say whether you have an ad hoc team or not, the important thing is that everybody's on the same page, understands the customer, their world, their challenges, and how we can help solve for that. And companies aren't as good at that because now we've we've siloed. And and it's just, uh, look, you're, you're an engineer. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you the budget. I'm going to give you the spec for your component of the job and just do it and get it back to me. You're, I'm your internal customer. And right. no, you can't see the real customer. And that's goofy. Yep. Well, Jerry, thank you. Uh, another great conversation. Much appreciated. Well, it's always fun, Mark. Yep. Uh, we'll do it again. Sounds great. All right. Thanks. And thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where As we've been talking about, value exists in your customer's head, which means you succeed and your success is all in your customer's head. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. 
if you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.